Romans 12, which is on page 1139 of the Red Bibles. Page 1139, uh, Romans chapter 12, starting at the first verse. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith, with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Okay, please keep that passage open and let me say a prayer as we turn to God's word. Loving Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture. Help us to listen to it with attentive hearts and open ears and to hear and to heed whatever it is you have to say to us this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me begin with a question. Why did you come here this evening? What brought you out in the cold and the grey and the drizzle to church this evening? It might be that you're here having come to church for the first time or for the first time in a long while and you're intrigued to learn more about this Christianity stuff. And if that's you, know that you're very welcome here and do chat to someone afterwards if you find that helpful. But for those of us who go to church regularly, why is it that we go to church, whether this one or another one. I suppose most of the time we don't really think about it. Maybe we just go because that's what we always do on Sunday. But I ask this question because I, I fear looking, looking into my own heart that the wider culture of consumerism within which we live has impacted how we view church and what church is all about. We go to church to hear a profound, thought-provoking sermon, to hear beautiful choral music, 
to sing uplifting worship songs, to enjoy the stillness of the space, or maybe simply to catch up with old friends. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. It's good to want to be spiritually fed and to listen to God's word. It's good to want to sing songs to the Lord. It's good to spend time with friends. But there's a danger when we think about church in this way, that church becomes all about me, about what I'm going to get out of it. And the danger of that, of course, is that at worst, church can become simply a spectator event, a performance we attend. Or it becomes just one possible event among many options. And if one week our favorite preacher isn't on, or it's a different style of worship we don't quite like, or our friends are away that we can well, maybe we'll be tempted to think it's not really much point going along. Staying in with the TV and a hot chocolate on a cold, dark night sounds more appealing. And our whole thinking about church follows the pattern of our culture. It becomes individualistic. It's all about what I can get out of it. But our passage this evening wants to cut right against such thinking about church. In these verses, Paul presents a different vision of what church is all about. It's not a performance or an event we go to to meet a desire or need we have. Church is a family we belong to. As Steve mentioned, we've been working our way through in recent weeks through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And last week we reached a key turning point in the letter. For the first 11 chapters, Paul has been explaining the heart of of the Christian message, the wonderful good news of abundant forgiveness, cleansing, and grace that is ours through Jesus Christ and his death for us on the cross. And that through the cross, we've been brought into a new family of God's redeemed people. And in chapter 12, Paul turns his focus from the message to the implications of that message. If this message is true, if God has radically transformed our lives in Jesus Christ, what does this mean for how we should live? And last week, as we've seen, we began by looking at the opening verses of chapter 12 and Paul's plea there to respond to God in all-embracing worship and to transform their thinking, to renew their minds in light of what Christ has done for us. And in these verses that we're looking at this evening, Paul turns to one important facet of how our thinking needs to change. And that's in our relationship to other Christians, our attitude to church. And there are three particular ways Paul says our thinking needs to change in this respect. We need to think rightly of ourselves, we need to think rightly of other Christians, and we need to think rightly of our gifts. So let's take each of those in turn. So firstly, we need to think rightly of ourselves. And here we're looking at verse 3. If you look down with me, Paul writes, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, and just as an aside, that's quite a solemn way of introducing this section, isn't it? It's as if he realizes that what he's about to say is going to be profoundly challenging because it completely upsets our natural ways of thinking 
but he knows that it's really important that he does say it. I say, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. So this important foundational thing that lies at the heart of how to think differently as Christians is simply, don't think too highly of yourself. Don't, don't make yourself out to be more, of more importance than you actually are. Because that can often be a natural human tendency, can't it? Whether manifested in a, in a proud, arrogant way when you, you secretly want everyone to be looking at you and congratulating you. Or the opposite, always worried what other people might be thinking of you and therefore still thinking just in a different way that everyone else's thoughts and words are revolving around you. Now Paul applies this as the passage goes on specifically to the context of church and so it's worth pausing and thinking in what ways might we be tempted to think too highly of ourselves in church? Are we ever tempted to think that my area of ministry, leading a Sunday school, helping with the Beeson project or running a prayer meeting, whatever it might be, my area of ministry is the most important and we get frustrated when others don't seem to recognize that. Um, but then as a result, we don't recognize the other ways um, other people are serving. Are we ever tempted to think we're not being sufficiently appreciated for the service we do? We've not been thanked enough for the importance of the ministry we've done. Or do we only sign up to do something because of the appreciation we'll get? Are we ever tempted to think that no one is quite as good at this particular ministry as I am, and so we become reluctant to let others have a go? Have a think. In what ways are, are you tempted to think too highly of yourself, particularly when it comes to church? So we're not to think too highly of ourselves, but the antidote to that is not, therefore, to think lowly of ourselves, to have a, a, a low self-esteem, no, no, what Paul says is, rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So don't think of yourself as too important, but also don't think of yourself as having no importance or value. And how we're to go about doing that, Paul expresses in that difficult phrase at the end of the verse. Thinking rightly of ourselves will be done in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Commentators disagree on, on exactly what this phrase is saying, but it seems to me that what Paul is saying here is that when we try to measure our importance or our value, we should do so by the faith that God has given us, by the faith we have in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour, a faith that says... I'm fallen and I'm broken and, and I can do nothing to help myself. But I'm loved by a God who so valued me that he died on a cross for my sake. And such faith is profoundly humbling because it tells us that we're not nearly as capable or competent or worthy in ourselves as we often like to think. But also profoundly encouraging because it reminds us that in God's eyes, we are of immense value and worth. 
And so by measuring ourselves by that faith, we'll be prevented from thinking too highly of ourselves or indeed too lowly of ourselves. But the key reason for Paul, why we should think rightly of ourselves, is because as Christians, we're not merely a collection of individuals. And this is where we really cut at the heart of the consumerist, individualist culture. We're not just a collection of individuals, but members of something bigger. And this is our second point, that we should be thinking rightly of of each other, of other Christians. Church is not, or at least should not ever be, a spectator event where we all come to see a performance staged at the front with perhaps a few, few volunteers being stewards or serving tea and coffee. But nor are we just a community, a group of people with a common shared interest, in this case, religion, who gather together once a week to do that common interest, like any other social club, such as a football club or a knitting club or whatever it might be. No, the church is even more profound than that. Do you see how Paul describes the church in verses 4 and 5? Do you see just how surprising it is? For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. These verses are astonishing, even shocking for their original audience, and they should shock us today as well. We seem to have a a natural tendency as humans to want to break up into little groups of people who have shared interests or a common background. And that can make perfect sense. It's often easier to make friends with people who are more similar to you, and such social groups can feel safe and more comfortable. But in Christ, something radically different has happened. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has not saved merely a a collection of individuals who have nothing to do with each other. Paul, earlier in the letter, spoke about how when someone becomes a Christian, they become united to Christ. And if we are all united to Christ, then that means we're all united to each other. Now, the church Paul was writing to consisted of Jews and Gentiles, and before the church came along, they would probably have had very little to do with each other. Jews, for example, considered Gentiles unclean and refused to eat with them. And to this group of Jews and Gentiles and other social groups who wouldn't have had much to do with each other either, Paul doesn't simply say, try and be nice to each other for the hour or so you're together. Try and find someone you don't know to say hello to them. Now, what does he say? He says, in Christ, we, though many, though we are from many different groups and backgrounds, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. The shocking thing is that Paul is saying to this group of disparate people, you belong to each other. You are like a family. You know the old saying, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. I mean, now in this day and age, with people moving around a lot more, families do become 
Some are estranged at times, and family members can, of course, sadly fall out and even disown one another. But even then, I think there's usually still a sense that whatever happens, my mum is still my mum. My aunt Agatha is still my aunt Agatha. My brother is still my brother. There's this deep sense within us that our family members somehow belong to us. How we belong to them. That there's, there's a bond, a tie that holds us together. And Paul is saying this is how we should be thinking about the church, about our fellow Christians. They're our family. Whatever happens, they belong to us and we to them. In fact, the analogy Paul uses here is even stronger, isn't it? He describes the church as one body which has an even greater sense of attachment to each other. Uh, Now, a number of years ago, I slipped and and fractured my elbow. And still today, it's not quite right. It aches sometimes. But it would be ridiculous of me to think on a day when it's particularly giving me some jip. Oh, my arm's really annoying me today. I I wish it would go and join another body um, to annoy, so I don't have to put up with it. Or let's leave my arm over there in the corner and pretend I've not noticed it. Whatever happens, every part belongs to the rest. And so if you're a Christian here this evening, look around. These are your brothers and sisters. As you look around, you might see someone you don't really like. Some people you find a bit annoying. Some people you might pretend you've not noticed. They belong to you. You belong to them. Are you thinking rightly about other Christians? Or rather, they're not just other Christians. They're your brothers and sisters. So we need to think rightly about ourselves, because we're not just individuals, but as Christians, we belong to each other. And so we also need to be thinking rightly about um, uh, other Christians, that they're our brothers and sisters. But if we're thinking rightly about our brothers and sisters then we want to love and serve them well. We want to support them. And so we have to go back to thinking rightly about ourselves and particularly about our gifts and what we have that we can use to serve our brothers and sisters. And so this is our third our final point then, thinking rightly about our gifts. And here we're looking at verses 6 to 8. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your the faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. I wonder what your family or household life is like. Or what is your wider, extended family life like? Now, no family is perfect, but I imagine that as we think about our families and our households and the people who make them up, we'll recognize, I hope, that each member has something unique that they bring to the life of the family. There's the person who loves cooking and often has the family around theirs for dinner. Uh, The person who loves telling stories 
and is often entertaining everyone else with their bizarre anecdotes. The organizer, who can always be relied upon to get anything done. The person who might be quiet, but always has something thoughtful and reflective to say, will often be there to listen to others. I I could go on, and this is perhaps a bit idealized. You might be thinking of people in your family who don't seem to um, contribute anything, but hopefully you get the point. In in our household, um, Stephanie and I work as a good team when hosting. Um, She's much more sociable than I am, so she can entertain our guests whilst I can retreat to the safety of the kitchen and do the washing up. And that suits us both well. Well, the same should be true even more so in the church. We're each unique people, each with something unique to bring to our church family. Paul lists seven particular gifts here, but this isn't supposed to be an exhaustive list. They're just examples. But notice what is on the list. There are the more obvious roles, such as teaching, what I'm doing now. The the roles we have rotors for, such as serving. Think of the tea and coffee rotor or the welcome team rotor. And there are things we don't have rotors for. We don't have a rotor for giving encouragement. So a gift doesn't have to be for something that has a clearly defined role, such as a Sunday school teacher or a musician. A gift is anything that we have that can contribute to the life of our church family, a way of supporting, serving our brothers and sisters. And I guess that might raise the question for some here this evening, I'm not really sure what my my gifts are. How can I discern what my particular gifts are? And as we come to a close, I just wanted to offer a few um, suggestions if that's you. First, pray. Ask God to help you discern what the gifts are that he has given you to use to bless others. Secondly, listen to others. Listen um, to what they say they think your gifts are. And here it's really important that we make sure we think of ourselves with sober judgment. Um, it's easy, isn't it, when someone says how well we did such and such a thing to be either to be filled up with pride and maybe start imagining that we're better than we are at that thing, um, or to go to the opposite extreme and dismiss the comments as all oh, that just being nice, and not to make any use of the gift God has given you. And that should mean we are to be honest also, gentle and loving but honest when we do give feedback to each other. Don't say someone did something well if they didn't, and don't assume someone knows they're good at something if you don't tell them. But take on board with sober judgment the feedback others give you. So listen to others. And and thirdly and finally, be willing to try something new. You never know, you might find you had hidden talents at children's ministry, or whatever it is. And if you're not good at it, it doesn't matter. You can try something else. But the important thing to note is that you do have gifts. Paul says here, we have different gifts, not some have gifts and others don't. Some have a place, a role to play, others don't. We all have a role to play in the life of our church family. And we all have many things that we can contribute to our family life together. It might seem very ordinary, there might not be a rotor for it, but there's still something that you have to contribute. So why did you come to church this evening? To hear a sermon? 
to sing songs of worship to God, to enjoy a peaceful space in the midst of um, the stresses of life. All good reasons to come to church. We do come to church to worship our Lord, to hear from him, be renewed in our daily walk with him. But we come not as individuals, but as a family. So let's not make coming to church all about what I'm going to get out of it. Jesus has united us together as one family, one body in him. We belong to one another. So let's not think too highly of ourselves, but in everything, be thinking how we can best love and serve our brothers and sisters with the gifts God has given us. Whether it's now, as we meet together, or as we leave beyond these walls to be witnesses of Jesus Christ in the wider world, wherever it is, let's be true family in Christ. And let me pray for God's help for us to that end. Loving Father, as hard as it can sometimes be, we thank you for the gift of the church. We thank you that you have brought us into this family. Help us to see our brothers and sisters in Christ as our family members to whom we belong and help us to give of ourselves in love to each other. Help each one of us here this evening to discern and to use the particular set of gifts you have given to us to serve one another, that through such love and service, your name might be glorified. Amen.